Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that's almost as addictive as high fructose corn syrup Coca-Cola from Mexico. My name is Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. Are you a fan of Mexican Coca-Cola? I, I don't think I've ever had Mexican Coca-Cola. That intro is not quite as excruciating as watching Rishi Sunak be interviewed by a couple of schoolboys. Not um, quite, but it wasn't too far off. <laughs> but of course, um, it was budget week this week. So we're going to have a quick chat about what was in it, what wasn't in it, why is that a problem? Steve, do you want to use your professional marketing, put on your professional marketing Stetson and and with that particular hat, examine brand Rishi, who's delivered this budget? I mean, it used to be in the good old days that chancellors would deliver the budget in the House of Commons. And in fact, Hugh Dalton, I believe, resigned for accidentally leaking bits of his budget before it came out. Actually, this one was just announced on Treasury press releases and on Twitter before it was ever delivered. And all with Rishi Sunak's signature right there. If, uh, and if not his signature, definitely a, a smiling photo of the Chancellor himself. Uh, because as you say, uh, Rishi Sunak has painfully gone out of his way to ensure that this budget, like all Treasury things, is all about him. It's all about positioning him as the saviour, positioning about him as the person who's coming in to fix all your problems um, and uh, keeping the country uh, in line and stable economically. Rishi Sunak genuinely seems to have gone out of his way throughout an awful lot of his uh, political career since becoming the Chancellor, at the very least. Like, he has very much put himself front and centre which is a very interesting differentiation between an awful lot of previous chancellors. Um, the, the one that immediately springs to my mind is comparing him to George Osborne, who at points was kind of like nicknamed the submarine because he'd appear for like the budget and a few kind of big, big set pieces and things like that, make his speech and then would just vanish under the water and you wouldn't really see or hear from him again. You'd hear from his for lack of a better term, his his followers, his adherents, his cronies um, uh, in, through the media and things like that, but you wouldn't see him. But then he'd pop up again when he was required to or when there was a nece- uh, it, was nece- it was necessary for him to do so. Compare and contrast that to Rishi Sunak, who, I'll be entirely honest, I feel like if he could get away with it, would quite happily sit on the uh, this morning couch every single morning because it means the entirety of the nation is watching him every single day. I mean, he's obviously pitching to be next Conservative leader is the long and short of it. And he's using the power of the Treasury to try and build his brand uh, amongst um, the uh, party faithful and the wider electorate as well. That's exactly what this looks like to me. It's very much a brand building exercise, um, which only really is of any benefit to him if he has further ambitions. And helped, I think, in that by still quite a flattering media coverage of him. The BBC, I think, has literally portrayed Rishi Sunak as a Superman 
Whereas you think, I think about, say, a chancellor like Gordon Brown, great Labour chancellor, massive achievements. But I think the I think that the point Steve Richards, I think, made when writing about Gordon Brown was that a bit like Harold Wilson, he ended up with a, a bit, he, he was famous for being devious, which, of course, is a little bit of a tautology. If you're kind of famous for for being devious, you, you're not really actually being that devious. And so a lot of Brown's budgets were sort of analysed, I think, with that in mind, weren't they? And the interesting thing with this one, and we're going to go into some of the details, the actuality of what is being proposed is very, very different from the slick treasury videos and the weird pose on the stairs, which is like a kind of MC Escher portrait gone weird. Looking at some of the measures that have been polled, the budget itself politically is quite popular, but one also gets the impression it's going to fall apart pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, it already has started falling apart. We're just a few days back um, uh, back from the budget, and already there are things which are going to uh, to are going to start biting the government in the ass. I mean, in a previous kind of like agreement with the uh, that the government that the government had outlined uh, outlined, like I think it was like a two point one percent or something uh, increase in salary for for nurses. As part of this budget, that is not no longer the case, and it's down to like one percent, which is means they've they've had a plan in place and they've gone back on that plan as part of this budget. So they've basically cut the amount of money that was going to be given to nurses, and that's already started to kind of filter through you know, online at the very least. It's the sort of thing that is going to be, especially in the light of the pandemic, going to end up potentially causing a lot of problems for the government. So in, in a very similar way, I feel, to uh, George Osborne's, um, what was it, Pastigate back in the day, where he tried to uh, increase the cost of, was it VAT on pasties from Greg's? And, yeah. Because it was trying to close food. a lot. Yeah. He was trying to close lots of VAT loopholes. And I think, yeah, Damien McBride, as former advisor to Gordon Brown, I think so. Like anyone with any political knowledge would not have touched that with a barge hole pole because you suddenly start hitting all these loopholes as you say about takeaways and there was a caravan tax i think as well wasn't there or something yeah 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 there, there were some things in there which you looked at and went well actually maybe some of these shouldn't have been been vax that free but a lot of them was just like oh i can kind of see why that is and that is a loophole but it's it's a nightmare but um but yeah so very similar to george osborne like things have started to like fall apart already. They've they've tried to kind of like create almost like a papier mâché like covering for the of the politics to try and show. Look, no, we're doing all of these things we promised, whilst not doing many of them at all, which means it's very easy to break through because like eventually all you just need to do is basically scratch at the surface and you go, well, what about this? You know, you, you've promised a levelling up agenda, but what you've delivered isn't that at all. The only thing I would say is that from a political perspective in some areas, it is quite a clever budget. He's continued, like, to keep the kind of like that that household budget analogy as ridiculous as it is for the economy going by talking about, yeah, no, we're, we're going to need to increase taxes to in, in, in order to pay for, for the coronavirus kind of like uh, costs, and it's which we don't need to do at all. Um, but he's, he's gotten that into a, a as kind of like a central talking point already, um, because it's a part of the um, part of the discussion and part of the budget. Um, but he's also timed 
all of those tax increases to happen in a couple of years time where miraculously I can call it now he's just going to come into the budget in 2023 and say we don't need to do this anymore this was set to happen next month but the economy's growing at a significant enough rate that it's not a problem we don't need to increase corporation tax we don't need to increase any of these things we're all good so from that perspective it's quite clever because he's setting up a victory for himself later on down the line potentially but it's not a good economic budget and a lot of the politics in it is still haphazard at best what i find really interesting actually is that on on the places like the bbc you've seen actually reporters explicitly saying actually the economy doesn't work like a household budget which i think is very very interesting because that that's the quintessential sort of thatcherite thesis about the state justifying a lot of the austerity that has happened over the past 10 years. And if you're going to suddenly see that paradigm being challenged, that has some really interesting, I think, long-term implications. Yeah, no, it, it definitely has some, some, some interesting implications for the, for the Conservatives coming up to the next general election, if that holds out, which given the propensity to, of, of the BBC to, to portray, uh, as you say, Rishi Sunak as Superman, I'll be honest, <laughs> I'm not overly hope- hopeful for. If that does happen, then yeah, it does create a, a problem for them because I'll be honest, the average Conservative MP and I'll be honest, the, of the, the average member of this cab- the Conservative ca- cabinet aren't going to be able to kick back on that. Michael Gove probably could. Most of the others probably couldn't. Wasn't expecting praise from Michael Gove in this podcast. I, I, I think I've said a number of times he's probably the most effective and probably most intelligent member of the cabinet currently. Doesn't mean I agree with him on anything, but... (laughs) Moving swiftly on from that, um, (laughs) I have to deal with the barrage of complaints. Interesting thing is, uh, as you say, it's politically astute in that Rishi Sunak sort of talks about how he... he, This was part of the run that he was going to be honest about the changes that needed to happen, but then wasn't necessarily very explicit about what those changes actually were. So actually, there's a lot of... uh, People like Simon Wren-Lewis number of economists who sort of picked up on this is that actually the budget we've had is an austerity budget the infamous anyone who spent any time on labor twitter this week um why why are you doing that don't look at twitter um but would have noticed that the farago over the rising corporation tax which as you say it feels steve that the reason why rishi Sunak's raising them now so that he can create himself you know he can cut them before the election and look amazing and wonderful and that's right But there's also the basic point of you don't raise taxes in the middle of a recession. Ben Lewis has said that, you know, fiscal policy, you use to stimulate the economy. Yes, Joe Biden is raising corporation tax in America. But listeners who've been paying attention to this podcast will also realise that that is coming as part of a one point nine trillion dollar stimulus, which uh, in economic terms is a lot of money. Although you're at a stage where so much of the British state has been cut away, you probably physically couldn't cut away anymore, looking at local government, for an example. But you've got a lot of creaking infrastructure, say massive backlog in in the courts, um, just to name one area. Um, Rather than putting more spending into that, in fact, we're not even really seeing a massive increase in, say, NHS spending. In fact, nurse... um, 
one of the things that has made the the front page this weekend, as you say, is starting to unravel, is the fact that uh, nurses are and doctors are going to get a below average pay rise this year. It, it begs belief that their political antenna is so blunt and not working that they've gone from clap for the NHS and we're not going to pay the people <laughs> who we were clapping for to, uh, to to get a decent decent pay rise. Like the, the cognitive dissonance there is spectacular. But there's also the, the, the government spin on this has been refreshingly blunt because they, I think there's a spokesman who's basically said, well, yeah, economic times are hard. No one's getting a pay rise. So nurses aren't going to get one either. Um, <laughs> which is a bit... Like, yeah, we, I mean, what... what I, we, I we mismanaged the economy and caused the biggest recession out of any G7 nation. So we can't give anyone a pay rise. Sorry, lads. But if there's any consolation, we're all screwed. Well, this is this is the thing that gets me though. It's like somebody pointed out on 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 Twitter. Well, the rest of the country has had billions invested in it as a result of this because of the furlough scheme, and these people have been working their asses off the entire time, whilst people like me have been sat very comfortably in my home office, um, still still working, and even people who've been furloughed have been looked after as a result of government intervention. So you've invested billions in the private sector to keep jobs going and make sure everything's all right. So why can't you throw a few billion to the people who literally at point put their lives in, 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 on the line to deal with this pandemic? That probably wouldn't have made a very good video. On, so on coronavirus support itself, so you've kind of hinted on that. So there are measures in there for the short term, aren't they? We've seen the extension of the furlough scheme till September, which I think is absolutely necessary. Um, I, I think, I suppose it was going to run out, I think the end of March, wasn't it? I suppose at least Rishi Sunak gave people three weeks rather than, I think, 24 hours notice that it was going to be extended, which I think I think businesses got last time. I think there, there's lots of emergency packages there, say for grassroots sports clubs, for arts and culture sectors um seeing some criticism interesting tortoise article talking about how we'll get to living up in a second but it doesn't really address like the the build back better part of the government's agenda as well so there's nothing really in there about what life might look like once we are out of the woods of this pandemic which if we go off boris johnson's timeline is sort of june july there's not much in there about say the future of work is there so if, if we if there's still some sort of remote working going on if you've got you know working from a sort of semi-remote situation where people are working from home maybe one two three days a week that has massive implications for local centers for town centers and city centers none of that's really being addressed i, I don't know how how fair a criticism is that do you think that we are that we it's not really looking to the future in that sense I think it's it's both fair and, and 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 not fair at the same the same time like the whilst the budget is a you know would be a good time to like announce those sorts of policies potentially where you're looking to the future in in, in different ways as you say for you know supporting town centers if people are not you know returning to work in the office in the, on the same level um as as they were previously um, and the economic impact that might have it's it's a much wider ranging thing and it's something that honestly will take time to 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 do um and i'll be honest like 
the government's barely coping with the uh, with the pandemic. They they weren't going to be able to to pull anything out for this now, uh, right uh, at this point in time anyway. But that said, I can guarantee actually the reason they haven't looked at it, I feel, is not because they're too busy or and they've got it on the back burner just kind of going well that once we're out then we're going to focus on this because actually we don't know what things are going to look like like there could be an immediate bounce back and actually most people will want to return to the office and all of that sort of stuff and it and it actually the it might just be a kind of a a slow unraveling that's this that this has begun rather than an immediate just and that's it no one's going back to the office anymore but i think that's not what the case is. I think what the case is, they've just kind of gone, well, of course everybody's going to go back to the office because why wouldn't they? Like, and because I think they've missed the uh, the fact that this has shown that an awful lot of businesses can now function um, without being, you know, uh, actually centralised in the way that they were before. I mean, a big uh, example of this kind of globally is um, related to like the game development industry, where before, like you'd have to move to wherever the game development studio is. You don't need to do that anymore. A lot of places um, are now basically uh, looking to hire people and they're saying, yeah, no, you can work from home. Like you still need like some very expensive equipment to do the job um and you know hopefully (laughs) the companies are paying for that um but like they're basically saying you don't need to relocate salesforce who are one of the biggest um kind of like software um kind of like sales uh people um in the like the b2b space uh are have, have basically said you don't need to live in san francisco anymore which has made a lot of people go, right, well, I'm moving away from here because San Francisco is very, very expensive, but I still get to keep my nice San Francisco-based salary. Um, So you can suddenly get a massive upshoot as you move to somewhere like Houston in Texas or back to Cleveland, Ohio, or London even potentially. Actually, yeah, it's more expensive in San Fran than London. (laughs) Tell you where they might move to. They could move to Darlington or Wolverhampton, couldn't they? They could indeed, yeah, because one of the things that did actually come out, and and this is actually quite a a good policy, I, I, I think. Um, overall, um, is moving a number of the decision-making organisations um, that form up the government out of London to other areas of the UK. Now, I think the ones that have been announced so far as like the housing ministry or for as part of DCLG um, has gone to Wolverhampton. And then the Treasury, I think this came out a couple of days before the, before the budget, but yeah, and the Treasury is moving up to Darlington in the north, which somewhat conveniently for the Chancellor is but a 15-minute drive from his constituency. I'm, I'm sure that has nothing to do with the decision-making process there at all, whatsoever. Um, but even if that was actually, it's still a good policy. It's still a good move to, to, to move it um, somewhere up north. Um, and actually, Darlington, the kind of Teesside area, is actually pretty uh, not a bad choice. Um, um, and both Darlington and Wolverhampton both saw Tory gains from Labour in the 2019 election. But again, that's probably just a coincidence. Absolutely. I'm sure it's 100% coincidental, just like it's coincidental that the uh, levelling up fund seemed to give uh, full funding to Conservative seats rather than Labour ones, you know. Well, indeed, it, most of it, I think, is a coincidence. I mean, so... Um, Forty set so that this new this new towns fund is giving money to towns. Hashtag Lisa and Andy. Oh, sorry, forty-seven of those towns are sort of in conservative-held areas. Nine are Labour, and fourteen 
I think are areas that the Conservatives gained from Labour in 2019. And there's definitely a sort of, feels like there's an element of pork barrel politics, doesn't it? Um, having said last week on the podcast that to Patrick, oh no, there's no such thing as pork barrel politics in this country. It doesn't usually take three days for my bold predictions and assertions to completely um, uh, be, be disproved. But I suppose the, I suppose what the Conservatives would argue is that if you're looking at a towns fund, Labour seats often concentrated around cities. So say places like Birmingham, Greater Manchester, uh, Birmingham, Manchester, London, all cities, not towns. Sorry to have to townsplain for a second. But I suppose the rejoinder to that is that if you look at the constituencies, London, Manchester, Birmingham, all see massive deprivation. Five of the top of the top 10 constituencies with the highest unemployment in the country are in Birmingham. And so therefore, if you're going to have some sort of infrastructure, maybe you might want to spend it in, in somewhere like Birmingham. That doesn't uh, help them win win seats, um, or at least probably isn't the most efficient means to help them win seats and hold seats, which I feel is bad news for Gary Sandbrook. Did you see, well, inter- well interesting that lots of stuff for Tees Valley, not so much stuff for the West Midlands. Um, yeah. We don't even get a free port, although I'm not terribly sad that we don't get a free port because it's, they sound terrible. <laughs> Some sort of tax avoiding nonsense, isn't it? Uh, it's yeah. Um, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I tried to read up on it, and my brain shut down trying to get get to the bottom of exactly what it was meant to do. Um, so, <laughs> if you're looking for a tax lawyer, don't go to Steve. Yeah, no, don't. Um, don't. Like, uh, not, not. I don't know tax, and nor am I a lawyer. So, <laughs> there you go. Two two minor drawbacks there. Um, so, so there's that. But we we should probably when we when we inevitably talk about Brexit in the, the two hour Brexit episode, I'll make you do at some point in the next month but we'll talk about free ports this is the interesting thing about rishi sunak actually so he backed leave which if you're in your tory mp on the make in 2016 unless you're boris johnson it wasn't really seen as the sound choice i suppose and i think it's interesting there's some talk maybe it was from the kind of conservative association but also seems that maybe he he might genuinely believe this stuff um, which is slightly terrifying, but then I suppose also means that maybe part of the of the reason behind the the, the sort of free ports is he, he said that apparently now we were we were free of the shackles of EU bureaucracy and we've got nice British bureaucracy instead for our small businesses to fill out on the border, um, so that's fine. But it means that he, he said that was the reason. Now we're out of the EU. We can have these free ports in place, but that's bollocks because we had them before and they were rubbish yeah. and didn't work. They basically just, they don't create jobs. They just take jobs from other areas. So David Cameron got rid of them. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, so much of the, um, as we said, so much of this budget is political smoke screens. It's, like, it's an austerity budget. Um, but it's being portrayed as levelling up. But the levelling up is actually that does occur into it isn't actually even being done, I'd say, fairly. I think it was Harry Cole, who's the political editor of The Sun, basically uh, came, uh, came up with, a, with, with a, a, a somewhat disparaging line, which is like, I don't think the left's attack line of vote conservative and your constituency gets more money is, uh, is going to be as effective as they think it will be which is not the point of it. It's like, we're not saying we're, saying we're going to run with that as a thing. We're saying you're not actually distributing money in the most efficient way. You're not actually doing the things that are going to have the greatest impact and actually lift up people's, 
you know, lives and improve them in those areas. What you're actually doing, for instance, is Robert Jenrick, his constituency, Jenrick obviously is the, from NHCLJ, as basically his seat and the town, that, or rather the town that his seat is in, has received the full amount possible from the from this town fund. It's known that what this is being going to be spent on, at least partially, is and doing up a, uh, uh, it's like a, like a, a basically a listed building in some capacity, which is fine. I mean, I have no objection to doing up listed buildings, but that's not necessarily a good use of this sort of money for actually, you know, making an impact on people's lives. It's a nice little thing that you can put onto your uh, your your election leaflets come the next general election, but it's not going to make a massive impact to uh, to actually improve anybody's livelihoods. The, the the critique that the left is the left generally. Um, and Labour in particular I was trying to make on this is that you're not actually doing what you said you'd do which is level everything up and instead you're splurging money on your own seats or your target seats or seats that you're concerned about losing again sorry Gary Sandbrook you don't get anything which I feel like is <laughs> quite indicative of their <laughs> of something no soup. no soup for you yeah exactly um, but it is just yeah just the entirety of this budget is is poor from an actual kind of economic development perspective which is what it was meant to be which is what boris johnson promised he was going to do but instead we've got um, not very much that's actually going to make a lot of difference to to, to people robert jenrick's seat is newark any any listener wondering um fun fact about newark which medieval monarch died in newark uh john second yeah it is um i my- picked this I picked that up from delving into this nonsense about because I think the building that's being restored is something to do with 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 King John. So it, my one of my favourite medieval monarch deaths, actually. So as as you'll recall, listeners, uh, there's a bit of a kerfuffle in England in 1216, what with you know barons of Magna Carta and the Pope declaring an interdict and trying to the barons asking the Prince of France to come and invade England. So King John flies with the crown jewels um, up north to try and fight the barons, at which point loses the crown jewels in the wash. Yes, so it, well, he, he loses them in the quicksand. Do you not hear about this? Yeah, so I King know. John loses the... Yeah, so King... There's um, a stretch on the eastern coast that's called the wash, and um, it's a bit kind of strong currents, sandy beach, not great. John goes over that, um, gets stuck... All the crown jewels get lost in the sands and he can't recover them. So he goes to Newark. Um, he's obviously a bit depressed because he's just lost all his money. So has a very, very rich meal of wine and apricots and tries to forget about it, from which he catches dysentery and dies. Wow. Wasn't one of the most lucky monarchs in our history was King John. No, clearly not. Um, um, does, that, so- does that mean there's some like crown jewels somewhere in the sands still or were they found? Ooh. I think I think they might still be there. I might uh, I'll have a look. I'm just gonna you know rent a yeah, metal detector and uh... maybe this is how we uh, you know we, we don't need to raise corporation tax to pay off these. Uh, um, so it's somewhere out at sea then probably. I think that's yeah. They're still people are still trying to track them down. Huh. One chronically describes the loss as a catastrophe on the scale of the Titanic. Not quite sure how a monastic chron- that's from the BBC. But I'm not quite sure how a monastic chronicle is comparing it to the Titanic. It's as disastrous as a shipwreck will be in 700 years' time. Um, I think it's still there. So if you, yeah, 
if you want to uh yeah any any listeners let us know uh, how you a fancy on. bit of uh, uh treasure digging although it says that the, the the sands are still dangerous so um be careful um we should probably end it there shouldn't we well with a rant about not even a rant just a, a series of interesting oh. facts about saint john uh, about king john yeah absolutely yeah, I, I, I'm think, for I, that. Think, I think we've covered everything yeah um if you want to hear more facts on medieval monarchs, <laughs> Corey is definitely the person to go for. <laughs> you you can pay for us, and we'll uh, we'll record a special Patreon about medieval monarchs on our Patreon page, won't we, Steve? I mean, we'll discuss that. But... We should, yeah, the, the politics. <laughs> honestly, that'd be really fun. But yeah, you can head over to not enough champagne. Oh, sorry, to patreon.com slash not enough champagne. See what you've done to me. Um, patreon.com slash not enough champagne, where you can throw us a few quid every month, uh, which will go towards uh, helping us cover the costs of running the podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, if you sign up, you'll get uh, some uh, unique episodes that we put out. We do some roundtable talks and things like that, as well as uh, blog posts. Uh, early access and unique um, all for our uh, our backers our champagne is over there our website is notenoughchampagne.com our facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne james cram designs our designed our logo you can follow him on twitter at james cram and dave depper is responsible for our theme tune Pookie good times i forgot to say composed again there you go it's a complete professional podcast this one my twitter handle is at paperback rioter mine's at acoustic radical happy plotting